Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. In this episode, I'm joined by two guests. The first is ESPN's Bob Lee, one of the seminal figures in soccer and television sports broadcasting of the last 40 years. Then I speak to U.S. men's national team left back, Anthony Robinson, who has an intriguing story about his journey. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! Our guest today is ESPN's Bob Lee. He is a seminal figure in soccer broadcasting and non-soccer broadcasting. At ESPN, as the company's longest-serving commentator, someone who joined the network on its third day of operation in 1979, he's the host of Outside the Lines in D60, and he has hosted coverage of men's and women's World Cups going back to 1982 in Spain. He's also been connected to the soccer world for much longer than that. Bob, thanks for joining me. Grant, it's an absolute pleasure to catch up with you here. It really is, and... I happen to have requested this interview with you unwittingly on my part, right <laughs> as you were beginning a six-month sabbatical from ESPN. What's the story? Uh, just a matter of I'm in my 40th year. Um, it, it's just the daily uh, accretion of deadlines and a lot of things going on. Just need to step back and just take a deep breath. And it's to do that is is over the course of a vacation, a week or two, is very difficult because uh, you just need to unplug and look at the whole picture. So I can make myself, uh, I think, uh, you know, a, a better journalist for what I want to work on and and catch my breath because uh, you know I may have lost a step or two on the pitch over the years. I mean, I know where the ball's going. Whether I can get there is another matter. <laughs> well, you're spending your first weekday of your six month sabbatical part of it with me, so I appreciate that. Well, see, I would have it no other way. <laughs> so I want to talk about things in a soccer context with you because this is a soccer podcast. How far back does your connection to soccer go? Well, uh, I guess it all started, uh, as Ted Baxter would say, in a small 250-watt radio station in Sacramento. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, North Jersey uh, at Bloomfield High School, where I was a student manager of my uh, the varsity soccer team, um, it's been, I was a senior in the 1971 fall season, and really grew to love the sport there. Uh, and we were, we played in the old Big Ten conference in North Jersey, and among the schools, and we had a hell of a team. Jim White was a great coach, and Carney High School uh, mm-hmm. was was part of our conference. Of course, we all know Carney from you know John Harks and Tom Ramos is from that town, and 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 in Harrison, that Carney and Harrison are right next to each other, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in that that hotbed of soccer in North Jersey, and that's that's where my interest first began. And that included the a connection to the New York Cosmos, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I I walked, I, I began working at the local cable system, um, and we we were televising events. And my boss said to me, "You know soccer." I said, yeah, so we easy enough to broadcast. I, I had never broadcast a soccer match in my life, but it's left to right, and I knew the game. And so we be, we, we were doing soccer telecasts on the high school level with three color cameras and a high-end production for its time in 1976 and 1977. And then a, a friend of mine who knew I was doing this, who was uh, uh, on the Cosmos beat for one of the local papers, said, you know, Krikor Yepremian, who was the general manager of the Cosmos, who was the brother of Garo Yepremian, <laughs> through the most infamous pass in Super Bowl history many years earlier. I said, Creek, are you premium? And said, they're looking for a public address announcer at Cosmos Games. Now, this was the height of irony because I was a Cosmos season ticket holder nice. in the 77 and 78 seasons. Section 134, row 2, seats 9 and 10. I remember it well. They were like 10 bucks. You were two rows off the pitch. It was insane. Huh. Right on the 18-yard line. He, Carlos Alberto playing right in front of you, and Beckenbauer is insane. You could reach out and touch them. And uh, so I went in and uh, brought a tape of what I, my soccer broadcast were, showed them I knew the game. And so for the 79 season, I was the public address announcer at Giant Stadium for the Cosmos. Now, they didn't go to Soccer Bowl that year. Uh, they got knocked out, but it was, it was, it was quite, you know, you, you're announcing – you know, Pele had stopped playing two years earlier, but he'd be making appearances, and you, you would announce him and Beckenbauer, and 80,000 people would cheer your every word. You began to understand how Mussolini uh, got the fever. <laughs> and 
that wasn't much longer before you went to ESPN. Uh, which was- exactly while that seventy nine season was unfolding, uh, ESPN had signed on, um, but not as a national service. That would come in September. So over the summer, I had come up for an interview and had off- been offered a position. Um, actually, had a two job offers on consecutive days, one from ESPN, one from New Jersey Public Television. I think I made the right decision, but at the time, <laughs> it was Grant at the time, a very close call. So I, what I did was, um, in, in the, uh, the first weekend of September 1979, did public address for Tampa Bay, I think it was Tampa Bay, Vancouver, Soccer Bowl 79, walked outside, got in my 77 Toyota Celica, stuffed full of my you know, material possessions, and drove up to Connecticut, where I began the next day at ESPN. Okay. And before I leave the Cosmos thing, and I think this came up at one point during a dinner that we've had over the years in some country, did some idiot boss not like your work or or have an issue with you? No, no, I don't recall that necessarily. I do recall. And by the way, it could have been one of so many countries that we have died. I I still remember that night you shanghaied us uh, across town to Mexico City. We were given explicit instructions by security. Do not go out of a hotel. And Grant Wall says, come on, we get dinner with some Mexican friends across town. And there we are in a tiny little VW taxi in a city of 40 million. We'll get back somehow. (laughs) But what was going on is that um, I would – I would – Announce among the, the people you would announce at Giant Stadium would be Bugs Bunny because they were owned by <laughs> Warner Brothers okay. at the time. And the script would be, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, here he is, Bugs Bunny. So Bugs would come walking out uh, and trotting out down the line you know, be, between the scantily clad Cosmos cheerleaders. And he'd be throwing these plastic or cloth carrots into the crowd. And this was back in the day, Bugs. <laughs> Remember, th- these were crowds of 60, 70, 75,000 people, sellouts. Yeah. I, my, my, my broadcast partner in, in subsequent years, Seamus Mallon, told me about this, that the guy playing Bugs that year was nabbed by undercover police outside Giant Stadium for trying to scalp his tickets. <laughs> to which my obvious question was, was he in costume or not at the time? And I believe he, he was not. <laughs> I mean, we've seen the film once in a lifetime about oh, the, the, the the glory days of the New York Cosmos and Studio Fifty Four and and all of the the stuff, just this amazing stuff around a soccer team in the United States. And anyone listening who hasn't seen it, you know, get thee to see uh, once in a lifetime. But did you witness anything like any of that craziness? Well, no, I was not at stu- I was 23 <laughs> and 24 at the time. And I was this little nevishy guy. No, no, no. I was not at Studio 54. But you would see the helicopters bringing people in and out of Giant Stadium because, you know, the, the sated uh, class from the Hamptons, uh, Jagger and that ilk. And I never did see Jagger, but I was told he was there. <laughs> they wouldn't drive. They would fly in and out. Um, I remember, um, I think it was during that season, they fired Eddie Fermani at one point, who was the coach, but he came back and attended a game, and he's seated in the box right next to us, and then the people spot him, and the people start cheering. I mean, it was it was full of uh, glitterate and, and intrigue, and it, it is difficult to describe how hot the Cosmos were for a three- or four-year period. Huh. So you did the 1982 World Cup at a uh, still young ESPN. What, from, from Connecticut, I should add, but still. I, what was that like? Because that was early days of ESPN. I don't, I don't even know how you guys presented the games, how you did the studio, any of that stuff. Well, I, I had done some NASL games. Uh, there still was an NASL in those days. And so I had obviously demonstrated and told the folks running, you know, the uh, – the event area that I knew soccer. So I'd done some games. So then it turns out well, we got the rights to some of these world cup matches. We're going to take the feed from the CBC. So the first couple of games uh, I'm in the studio and I think I work with Bob Carpenter. I, I know I work with Seamus Mellon and um, we would just do pregame uh, at halftime and postgame and throw it to a feed from the CBC. But then I found out these guys are sitting in a motel or a hotel in Madrid and doing it off tube. <laughs> So I, I went to my boss, Bill Fitz, and I said, Bill, why don't we do that? We can do the same thing. He says, yeah, sure. 
So we got the lineups, and we got the international, just the international sound circuit, which just gives you the the, the crowd, mm-hmm. and we started doing games that way, huh. and it was a ball. And in Brazil, France, that epic match, um, the semifinal from Sevilla, yeah. the first ever shootout between France and West Germany. I, I was privileged to call that match, you know, with the great. Uh, the, the, that incredible Batistone injury and, and, mm-hmm. and the moment of violence in the game. We did that. And then the final was on ABC um, on, on the final Sunday of that World Cup in 1982, and it was in Madrid. But I got a call and said, well, they got Jim McKay at the game, but they're not sure that, um, he's gonna, that the audio circuit is going to hold here. So can you go down to New York and be the standby play-by-play announcer? So now... <laughs> I get one rate for just showing up, and if I get on the air, I get another rate, and it's going to pay my mortgage for the year because, I mean, it's the old days at ABC, and my mortgage ain't much. And so I'm down there, and I'm trying to remember. I think it was Al Troutwood, but I know Giorgio and I were ready to go, and at one point there was a little blip, and you're like, get him ready, get him ready. And I'm up on the set, and I got my starts. And you know you know what it's like when you get to a final. You've, you you know it cold, right? You know yeah. these teams cold you know the storylines the personalities the backstories and i'm just oh man i'm ready but no unfortunately the audio circuit held and jim called the uh, the balance of the match but I, I was at the final and Giorgio and i were ready to go if needed <laughs> so i'd be curious to know back in those days and obviously the nasl had had something of a heyday in the 70s uh was still around in the early 80s what was the approach like in terms of a strategy to covering soccer on television at that time, because there's a guy named Dave Wasser down in Austin, Texas, who actually sent me some videos of broadcasts from the seventies NASL and uh, those days was, did you guys, were you told to cover the sport in a certain way? Or were you like supposed to assume uh, a knowledge or a lack of knowledge among your listeners? Not really. Um, I think we were basically left to our own. Uh, <laughs> seriously. Yeah. But I, I think there were attempts from time to time from some producers, and even into the 90s with mm-hmm. MLS, I think, to, um, uh, to be more didactic, to teach, to you know, uh, di- digress into an explanation of offside, to identify players more. And I always, that was always something I always struggled with how to call a match, who's watching. And I always tried to try to find that midpoint between, well, you must like the sport because you're watching. So you know it's 11 aside, and you have a pretty good knowledge of what offside is and, you know, <laughs> the ebb and flow of the game and the terminology. But there are ways to gently insert nuggets of little study nodules on the game here and there that won't drive off the, the well-informed. And that's, but you, you can call, you can call a match and you might think it's the best match you've ever called. And then, well, even before email, the phone calls and the post email you'd get would say you were too pandering to the newbies. And then the other people would say, I didn't understand what you were saying, <laughs> but it's this, it, that's, but that's the beauty of the sport worldwide. As my friend Seamus has said quite often to me, he says, you know, Ten different writers in Europe, and especially England, watch the same match. They write ten very different match stories mm-hmm. in the paper, and it's as you well know, it's not a, it's a it's a theater review. It's mm-hmm. not a newspaper story. It's as if you've just seen uh, Death of a Salesman for the first time, <laughs> and, and and you know that some of the best writing you'll ever see are in English dailies from the you know like the Henry Winters of the world, like the, the, the the most literate writers who don't necessarily have any access or very limited access to actually do player interviews. And so you're right. It is like almost like a, a critical review of a, of a theater project. Frank DeFord used to not a huge soccer fan, as you know, yeah. I, I, but I, that was a blind spot. We talked about often. Yeah. You know, he, he still liked the way that the British writers covered a, a soccer match that it was, he thought it was more coming from them and you weren't beholden to getting quotes after the game that often didn't really say much. Yeah. And, and when you get a great upset as inevitably once a year, we will in the FA cup mm-hmm. when a scunthorpe or even someone <laughs> lower than that will reach up and maybe if not beat draw 
you know, someone like a villa or an Everton or something, and and you read of these small villages erupting in glee, and it's it's as if they've won World War Two all over again, and and it's written with such literate passion and rich imagery. I mean, how do you you know your 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 eyes get moist reading this stuff? Is what the sport means to people. So, what are some of your favorite experiences covering soccer at ESPN over the years? Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> um, I'll always remember the uh, the qualifier with Costa Rica in Portland in 1997 because it was touch and go. I mean, it, it, we the United States needed that 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 win, mm-hmm. and it was the first game you'd ever had those thunder sticks. <laughs> We're in Portland, and Nike had passed out all these thunder sticks. I mean, um, you know, Steve Sampson uh, was the coach. Of course, I'm sure you've listened to the to Roger Bennett's podcast uh, you know, about all the the issues with that team and, 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 and the relationship with the coach. But I, I remember calling Tab Ramos's winning goal uh, in that. And if you listen closely, you can hear a thud, thud, thud. And it only, only those people in the booth will realize that was me turning away from the monitors and like pounding the table like, oh, this is great. <laughs> Because it's it's you know when you broadcast for the national team you never I never use the word we mm-hmm. I, I always tried to be objective to that extent but good lord is it is there any doubt who we want to win? <laughs> um, I'll remember uh, I'll remember uh, being uh, seated with Steve McManaman in the studio in Johannesburg um, as the United States was on the verge of being eliminated from 2010 World Cup, and England had just wa- uh, done the business in their game, and then Macca and I are sitting there, and together we watch Landon Donovan's, and you know, people forget that great outlet pass, of course, uh, mm-hmm. it, and, and boom, down the field it goes, and go, go USA. I mean, that was indescribable. I mean, you almost lose consciousness because you're yeah and then you're like whoa they're coming to us in about 45 seconds we've got to like (laughs) get in the mode but you have to channel some of that excitement and show it desperately on the air Mm -hmm. um i I can i can think of uh, standing in uh uh, san pedro sula uh uh, in uh, honduras the night we qualified in an incredible game qualified for the 2010 world cup coming Mm in i think it was uh, a missed penalty kick I was standing at field level, uh, held back from the pitch by the guys in the submachine guns. And you haven't lived until you've been ground level in Central America for a World Cup qualifier. I can also recall standing in that same stadium four years later when we lost 2-1 on a late goal. And I had made my way down near the U.S. dressing room. And you've been there. I mean, you've been in those situations, Grant, where the sound has a physical quality. Mm-hmm. You almost feel as if you are enveloped in a physical blanket of something. So deep and loud is the passion for this Honduran crowd when when they they beat the Yankees. Uh, Moments like that you just can't ever forget. Yeah, I always thought it was cool that you went into, you know, I, I would say some pretty hairy situations in Central America. I don't know how many... Uh, people of your stature in TV would have would have done that. Um, well, uh, at least I didn't go to Tegucigalpa to, 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 to see the other president, the other president of Honduras, <laughs> as I think, oh, maybe you did, and were held up at gunpoint? I was held up at gunpoint, and I will always be appreciative of you contacting me uh, very soon after that had happened, af- offering any assistance to the dummy me who had put myself in that situation trying to do some side reporting the day before the game um but yeah yeah it's uh that's but that's how much of the world have you and i been blessed to see because of this sport yeah it's taken me places i never would have gone in my life um over the globe and and the best part on somebody else's dime (laughs) we do try and eat well no matter where we go (laughs) I know we'll put together a group and, and company loyalties. You know, you know, we have to whack the bill up so it looks good on everybody's expense account at the end. Oh, shoot. Um, now I can remember Sports Center anchors making fun of soccer for years, and it seemed for many, many, many years. Yeah, I, I mean, it was almost like this was just what you did for a lot of folks uh, on that show. Where do you think that came from, and what was that like for you? At the time, uh, I came from. Uh, look, you look for the easy laugh, and and you also it's not something you understand. Uh, 
And I, at first, you know, when you saw it way back in the early years, it's like, oh, guys, you'll like it. And of course, it didn't help. The soccer didn't help it's, itself. NASL folds. Uh, we're, we are reduced for a while to nothing but indoor soccer, which, you know, is nice, but is not really soccer as we know it. Uh, there is a, and we both know this to be true, a huge element of soccer snobbery among soccer fans mm-hmm. who, who, when they hear someone make fun of their sport, do not react, and why should they, generously. And it, it bothered the hell out of me. And I would, I would, I felt like Che and Fidel in the Hills, <laughs> the late fifties, just trying to run, you know, rear guard actions like getting highlights on. There's this thing called Champions League. I can get you, you know, we can get access to the highlights. This is an important transfer. We all report. Um, it was around for a while. It, it was, and, and eventually, it became almost edict. Like this bleep will stop. But I think it stopped organically. Certainly. On its own, well, it stopped for a while around the 2002 World Cup when we got all the way to the quarterfinals. Mm-hmm. Sir. But in 2010, the the effort for the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, which was a company, our company each year, I don't know if we still exactly do it. We, we enumerate four or five priorities, and it was rare that we actually took one event. And the 2010 World Cup was a company priority, mm-hmm. and it was a huge. I'll never work on anything more complex more wide-ranging and more impactful than that because it, it well I spent a total of about three months in that in that country over the over two years and I think everyone learned in the company whether they were a believer or not that this was an important moment that it was a validation of modern-day South Africa which still is you and I both know is bedeviled by horrible problems but still it beat the alternative and I think the 2010 World Cup was transformative. It was transformative for the sports profile in the United States. It was transformative for those of us who worked on it. I had a, I got, I had an opportunity during the World Cup to interview Archbishop Desmond Tutu, um, and he was wearing a makarapa. Yeah, a makarapa. A makarapa. For those who aren't familiar, is a miner's helmet, um, which black South African fans would, would wear to matches, soccer being the black South African sport, rugby being traditionally the white South African sport. And, and the, the Archbishop walked into our interview in Cape Town wearing a, a Bafana Bafana jersey, the South African national jersey, and a, and a Makarapa. And, 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 and Bishop Tutu is of slight stature, maybe 5152. And so I had to, Archbishop, would it be possible for you to take that Makarapa off so we can conduct the interview. <laughs> uh, but also, in the course of that time, um, as we flew down to Cape Town to talk to him late in the group stage play, was one of the most incredible moments. This is a man who, when Mandela was imprisoned, uh, he could have gotten out of prison at any point by making an accommodation with the white government. He chose not to and did not do that. He was on the inside. Archbishop Tutu was on the outside fighting for um, majority rule and 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 end to apartheid, and his life was in danger at any given moment as as the black Anglican South uh, Archbishop of, of Cape Town, South Africa. And of course, this gentleman won the Nobel Peace Prize. We're about to begin the interview, and he says, "Excuse me for a moment. Would you mind if I let let us all in a brief non-denominational prayer?" Hmm. And he asks me this, and I'm what am I going to say? Except certainly, sir. Mm-hmm. And there are about 15 of us in this room, and you're led in prayer by the Archbishop of, of Cape Town who won the Nobel Peace Prize. And he's like, whoa, yeah, you wow. can't buy a ticket to a moment like that. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I, I do wonder, you know, ESPN had broadcast the World Cup, the Men's World Cup in 2006 and in 2002, 98, 94. Why was 2010 so different? I mean, that I think 2010, we both agree, is what people will look back at in historical terms of the sport in America as when the World Cup became truly, truly big time in terms of coverage by television. So what happened in 2010? Um, well, two th- I mean, 2006 was, was uh, the United States had crashed out and people on the air. We became a soccer nation, I think, in one regard then, as soon as we came out of that, the loss, it was Italy, right, the last match, uh, or it was a Ghana, I'm trying to remember. Um, Eric Ghana. Went home. 
Yeah, Ghana, right. Uh, Eric uh, on the air, um, as would happen in any other footballing nation around the world, yelling for the head of the coach. Mm-hmm. So we, we, have, we had come of age in one regard, but the 2010 World Cup being in South Africa, the first World Cup in South Africa, the history of that nation at that point was only, what, 20 years removed from apartheid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the the further the older I get, the more I realize that there are younger members of our audience and even of our staff who weren't around to remember that this is a legally racially segregated state of incredible brutality uh, that was uh, sanctioned and and it was this great economic engine on the African continent. And I think we all realized, and I know that Chad Drake, the executive producer, uh, Amy Rosenfeld, and, and Tim Scanlon, all the, all the folks leading this production. Uh, that this was an opportunity for us to tell a lot of stories. Mm-hmm. It was not a footballing story. It was a story of the continent. It was a story of the nation. It was a story of what the nation had been through. And, I mean, U2, we did a partnership with U2 for uh, for music. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had people in country for months shooting features all over I went over in 20, 2009, right after the Confederations Cup, and spent several weeks doing some reporting. And I went back early in 2010 to do some more reporting. Um, and that Atlanta Joburg nonstop at 17 hours was the longest flight <laughs> at that point. You'd get three meals over, you know, each each way. But we all, I think, understood that this we were, you know, the football. Yes, was a large part of it, uh, but we we had an obligation to tell the story. There's a there's a and one of the one of the seminal men about all of these productions, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Mason, who was one of Rune's boys, Rune Arlich, mm-hmm. and Mace, uh, God bless him, he's still in I believe in his late seventies, still working hard in this industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, his phrase was sense of place. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do something, if you're going to be somewhere, you know, as McKay used to say, Jim McKay, and I, I loved him for saying it. When you go somewhere, look down the side streets. That's where the stories are. And 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 in looking down the side streets on a grand scale, a sense of place. How? What is it about South Africa? Who are these people? What has their experience been? And then then you do the soccer on top of that. Mm-hmm. You're gonna you're gonna bring your audience on a six week journey. And then you on top of that add the United States with that fantastical finish mm-hmm. with Donovan's you know go go USA goal as he and Dark called it. Mm-hmm. That's why that was an important moment. I think it created a whole new generation of American soccer fans, sophisticated and 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 in calling the soccer. And you asked this question before, uh, twenty ten. You know, we had a fully international cast of experts on the desk with me. I mean, the host, myself, and Mike Tirico, Chris Fowler, we were the sole Yanks along with Alexi Lawless. Everybody else was outside the States. And they told us, listen, hosts, you guys worry where the cameras are. We're not even going to have this conversation with our commentators. We want them all to have conversations just like they'd have at the bar about the game. Arguments, whatever. And as far as the level of what we're going to call it at, you think I'm going to take the time to explain the offside rule if I'm sitting there with Roberto Martinez, <laughs> Lowry, or or you know any one of these great international stars? We got to call the World Cup we always wanted to call. Mm-hmm. Uh, we assumed everybody knew, and we're calling it with people, you know. And I just to make them comfortable, I, you know, you call it football, and you would get them involved in conversations, and they'd forget where the cameras were, and you just go and have the time of your life. So all of that rolled up all together was why 2010 was a transformative world cup yeah i I, great memories of that tournament great memories of uh the 2011 women's world cup and wombach's goal and against brazil um and i think that was at a time actually when espn really seemed to put a lot into covering the women's world cup in 2011 the right way at a time when right before that the popularity of the U.S. women's team had kind of waned a bit until that tournament when so many things happened. Yeah, and and you know, I, I we were all over Germany that summer, 2010. We had a mobile studio, um, and again, it was you know as transformative and inventive as 2010 was in covering a men's World Cup. The idea of like having a traveling studio that we could just drive from one venue to another. Uh, that was equally as transformative, and um, it got a little interesting. I mean, we'd be sitting there in Dresden or in Braunschweig or in Berlin or wherever we were in Frankfurt 
well, Frankfurt was the headquarters, but um, they'd be rolling tapes in Frankfurt. We'd be three, four hundred miles away and watching on a monitor with a two second delay. So <laughs> I try calling highlights that are being rolled two seconds before you see them. It doesn't seem like a lot of time, but it's, you know, an intricacy of television. But again, assembling a great international cast. Um, and you talk about we, we, we had a. Um, we had one of those tour buses, a big old Mercedes bus, mm-hmm. and we would. It was, it was like the Stones were on tour. We would drive from. We only took one flight the whole month. We would drive from city to city. Sometimes it was three, four hours. But you, get, you know, the late Tony DeChico, God bless him, worked with him, and he and Brandy and I were on the host desk, mm-hmm. and we just had the time of our lives, and um, you know, just learned a lot about people, hang, hanging in close quarters with them for for a month, and it was fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I sometimes remember the dinners as much as the games. I remember I had a very nice one with you and, and Tony uh, at that tournament after things really caught fire in, in the quarterfinal when the U.S. won the way they did. And it seemed like it went from, I think there were three print writers from the U.S. at that Women's World Cup before the quarterfinals, and after the quarterfinals, I think about a hundred came over for the last well, week of the tournament. Yeah, I mean, you 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 cannot have more drama than that Wambach goal yeah. against Brazil playing a, and even the women would say it a man down, and then you know scoring at the death like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but a tournament that uh, you know that was, I would have loved to. We were a mile from the stadium with our with our uh, location, but I was not at the match. But you could almost hear the crowd from where we were. So also in 2011, something happened that I think caught me off guard. I'd be curious to know if it caught you off guard. Uh, that was when Fox Sports beat out ESPN and others to win the rights to broadcast World Cups. Uh, well, World Cups from 2015 to 2022, uh, men's and women's. Um, did that catch you off guard? Yes, um, but when you work in our company, you realize that uh, uh, the reason when we do have an event, we're able to do everything so well is that we're, we're such good stewards of, of, of budgets and planning and money, frankly. And um, it came down to a, well, you know, many pay grades over mine, mm-hmm. what, what the outer limits of what was willing to be spent. And the term loss leader is not one I don't think that is eagerly embraced in my work environment. So I don't know what the math was that, that Fox had, but they felt the math was good. It was tough. It was a punch in the gut, just as it was a punch in the gut when they opened those envelopes. Um, and, and of course, we know how the sighting of those tournaments came to be now. <laughs> it was thoroughly, profoundly, and universally corrupt, and it will not be undone and has not been undone with Russia and Qatar. But uh, as Alexi was sitting next to me on the air when they opened that envelope uh, that said Qatar for 2022, and he said, I'm gutted. And so was I. I mean, quite frankly, uh, it changed the uh, the out years of, of my career. Um, if we had these these World Cups and they were ESPN properties, I'd be planning, I think, a different glide scope, hmm. but a uh, glide path. But uh, we don't. So that's life. But yeah, it was it's tough. Uh, and it was it was a tough patch when the tournament this year began in Russia. We uh, we all were commiserating on group texts or running into each other and just and 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 wishing our friends and we have many friends here i mean you're you're just one of many that i have that that worked uh, on the fox broadcast want wishing them well but also saying my gosh it's tough because it was the first time in a long time that we weren't part of it but you know uh you get to a south side johnny concert or you get away to nantucket or you get to see your grandkids over the summer and uh, you know the paybacks are nice yeah i should say full disclosure i do work for fox sports uh i feel like i should mention that um I guess in terms of FIFA, you brought that up, uh, and you and I have covered this story over the years, uh, which included, obviously, in 2015, the arrests uh, in Zurich and the subsequent uh, proceedings that are still going on in courts here in the U.S. Sepp Blatter ended up leaving office as the president of FIFA, and how he's still not prosecuted is one of the great mysteries <laughs> of life. You know, he actually, I bumped up literally uh, next to him in the lobby of our Moscow hotel in um, during the World Cup. And Russia being one of the few countries I think Seth Blatter can go at this point and not risk being arrested. <laughs> and, and what does that say? And I, I was fumbling for my camera trying to do it like... Uh, t- to get him because literally right next to me, he was hugging 
uh, Vitaly Mutko, the oh my god, the recently banned for life from the IOC uh, Russian official, <laughs> uh, who still has not uh, been banned by FIFA. Uh, for they'll get around to it some year. Yeah, maybe. Uh, for his role in state-sponsored doping, um, has FIFA changed? In your opinion, there's a new president, but there's still a lot of the same people who were there before 2015. You know, the change was so swift and so stark when Blatter resigned. And then Infantino was subsequently elected on that second ballot. And you could see, uh, you know, the hand of the U.S. working on the floor as, uh, as that second ballot was approaching. Um, you, there was hope, I think. And, and, you know, we're supposed to be objective about it. But there, we all knew how corrupt FIFA was for years. And it was like railing, you know, at City Hall. You weren't going to change it, especially as an American. Um but I, I get the increasing sense that things are at best only marginally better, if that. Uh, they're probably they're much more subtle and probably not as blatant. But um, you know, you're you're never going to fully, I think, uh, democratize the culture. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I think it's an ongoing story. It's something I want to keep covering, and and obviously. You guys at ESPN have done a terrific job, uh, along with Jeremy Schapp, uh, covering well, Jeremy's piece on Bladder. I think you know was that yeah. uh, did basically showed you know, uh, what had been suspected but not proven, and he basically he and his producers pulled those threads all together, just as his reporting on the workers' situation in in Qatar mm-hmm. was revelatory. Um, and I still, I still, you know, I'm sure you and I share a lot of doubts about what this next World Cup is going to be. I mean, money can cure a lot of evils, but I still, you know, late in the year, the calendar, mm-hmm. uh, uh, political, uh, who knows what the political situation in that part of the world is going to be in 2022. True. Um, as we wind down here, I appreciate you taking this much time. Uh, sure. What's your sense of Major League Soccer in 2018 now that it's 22 years into its existence? I think it's um, – I admire the discipline that they have uh, exhibited in, in avoiding the pitfalls of the North American Soccer League. I applaud the raise in quality at play for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how much more they can keep expanding and still maintain one division. Mm-hmm. And I know that the whole push-pull about promotion and relegation, but – you know, in the realities of American sports financing, I, I don't know that that's going to happen. And I recognize, too, that times they have to kind of, they'll say they don't make it up as it goes along with how, who, who ends up where. But it's, it is a net huge positive. And, and they talk about being a league of choice, and it is. I, I just, I've seen portions of this movie before, having watched the NASL, except that I think that the fading stars that come over to finger, to, to finish out their career are a little bit, uh, younger than Georgie Best and at all <laughs> back in the seventies, who, who wouldn't want to go see Wayne Rooney play? And he still has gas in the tank, without a doubt. But um, listen, uh, it is you know I, I give them a I, I give them an A minus. I really do. Yeah. Well, Bob Lee, uh, thank you for what you've done for the sport in this country, and good luck on your six month sabbatical. I hope you enjoy that. Well, I'm trying to get to some matches here and there. Let's let's see about that. But uh, listen, it's a joy to talk with you. The only the only down part of this is that it's not in some exotic city with a bunch <laughs> of us around the table just fighting over the wine list. <laughs> Promise that we will do that at some point again. I will look forward Excuse to that day. Me, thank you. Thank you. I want to thank Bob Lee for joining me. Next up is my interview with Anthony Robinson. Our guest today here in Tampa is Anthony Robinson, the 21-year-old left back for the U.S. men's national team, which will be taking on Colombia and Peru this week in international friendlies. Anthony, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, really good to have you here. Um, let's dive right in. I want to talk about the, the U.S. national team games last month. You had an eventful couple of games, I think it's fair to say. Um, you know, Douglas Costa made life difficult in the first game against Brazil, and then you came on in the Mexico game, had the assist on Tyler Adams' winning goal. 
made a real difference in the outcome of the game. Could you take me through what you experienced in those two games last month? Yeah, sure. Um, I'd say the first game, it was a real test, you know, going up against Brazil, one of the best football teams in the world. That's their reputation. And uh, it was a really tough game. Obviously, on my side, I've got Douglas Costa, one of the best wingers in the world. A um, few few occasions, he, he showed that class and, you know, took me down the line. Um, got the assist for the first goal they had. But um, overall, like especially second half, I thought we played a bit better. And it was a tough game, but um, towards the end, we got better as a team. And then the second game against Mexico, I wasn't starting, but... Uh, I was just ready to come on and make an impact and frankly I came on done alright and then got an assist for the goal and you know I just rounded off the camp in a positive way. I know like Douglas Costa has done that to a lot of people over the years. Um, between those two games, between the Brazil game and the Mexico game, did you do anything different to get in the right frame of mind or do you, do you, what do you do in between games like that and then have a, a really positive impact like you did against Mexico? Um, just, I'd say sitting down and watching the clips back from the game. So, you know, the times where I was in good positions and the times where I was in bad positions, watching them, analyzing where I was and, you know, what you can improve on for next game. And um, the coaching staff, Dave and whatnot, um, took me aside and showed me the clips and was like, you know, just trying to speak to me and tell me how I could do better. And, you know, luckily in the second game, I didn't get punished like I did in the first. In these games over the next week, you may well come up against some terrific wide players uh, from Colombia and Peru, guys who have big names on the European scene. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, a guy like Juan Cuadrado potentially or yeah. uh, Carrillo for Peru or a couple other guys at Vincula. Um, when you face that kind of speed and skill, how do you approach your goals for what you want to do as a left back during that game? Um, I'd say first things first, is you've got to think about it. You're a defender, you're there to stop goals. So um, the very first job I'll have is shut my man down at all times, trying not to let him you know, create any goals or score himself. And then after that, you know, being able to take them the other way and try and affect the game positively because in the end we want to win. We don't want to just sit back and defend against good players. We want to attack. You play a position left back that has always been incredibly hard for the United States to find someone to play at international level. Why do you think it's so difficult to find an international level left back compared to other positions? Um, I don't know. It's a bit of a tricky one. I've heard a lot of people say that you know left back's a position that the U.S. national team have struggled with, and um, you know that's something that you know hopefully I can take advantage of and I can make that position my own. Um, the difficulty, I don't know whether that arises from, you know, just, you know, look where where players are playing and, you know, it depends where players have converted from. Some players have moved from midfield to left back, some players are centre-backs moving to left back and it's not their natural position. Um, luckily, like, left back, I've been playing there for quite a few years, so it is my natural position now. So hopefully that's something that, you know, I can do well in. And you are a lefty, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, just wanted to make sure on that. Yeah, uh, right-footed left backs always struggle. Yeah. Um, and what has training camp been like this week with the return of Michael Bradley and Brad Guzan, the veterans? Have you noticed any differences compared to your previous camps? Um, not too much of a difference. You know, they've come in and they've shown, you know, they're, they're very, very nice guys, very welcome, very helpful to the younger players. And, you know, just them bringing that experience towards us really helps, like, you know, the coordination and stuff. There's more communication um, with the players and the staff about, you know, certain situations in the game. So, you know, I think the experience is only valuable to us. I noticed before we came upstairs here, uh, you're having some fun with Tim Weah. I, is there a good vibe with the young guys, especially on this team? Yeah, I'd say there's a really good vibe. You know, there's a lot of players, um, especially from the younger players who've played together through the youth teams, and um, so they've got to know each other really well. But I feel like even the whole team, Jelen as a whole, they've all all worked really well together. Is getting to know each other. The staff really encourages you know to say at meals, sit on different tables, and get to know each other and. Um, you know, the relationships that we develop off the field will help us on the field. So that's something they really encourage. Um, as it, if anyone can't tell by your accent, you have dual citizenship yeah. for England and the United States. What's your story of your connection to the United States? Yeah, well, um, you know, my, um, grand, uh, my grandma lived there on my dad's side. She lived in uh, between Florida and New York and my father moved out there when he was a young... Uh, he was born in England and he moved there when he was young. Lived in um, White Plains, New York, mm -hmm. and then moved to um, North Carolina to go to Duke University. Um, so ever since I was a kid, I knew I had dual citizenship and I could play for both teams. At what point did you take it, the idea of playing for the U.S. like as a real 
possibility? Um, pretty early on. I know that um, internationally lads started from like under 16, under 18. Uh, when I signed my scholarship for Everton, I remembered uh, making sure that it was clear I could play for England and United States. Uh, the first camp I got called up to was the US national team when I was under 18. Um, so ever since then, I'd always been looking out to see if there was another chance to get a call up or wait. I know I um, had a chance to go to another camp when I was an under 20, but um, it wasn't in the international break, so I had to miss out on that one. Um, and then when I got the call for off day for this camp, I was well enough for this camp for this team. Um, you know, I was over the moon and I couldn't wait to start. And like, I guess I had a question about your dad. He played at Duke. What kind of player was he? Well, from the stories he tells me, he played a bit of everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Every team he played for, he played in different positions. He was uh, more a winger or a striker, pretty like powerful, fast player. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not too dissimilar to myself. It's just he was more of an attacker than a defender. Okay. And how does he feel in particular about you playing for the United States? Yeah, it's really proud for him as well. You know, he played um, played quite a lot of soccer out there when he was young, and um, to see his son. Um, do more than him in the game and then playing on an international stage he's he's delighted him and my mum as well and what are your parents names uh, uh marlon and kelly okay gotcha um just a few more questions here uh you've been at everton and everton player for years you're currently on loan to wigan when you got a chance to start training with everton's first team a few years ago you suffered a pretty horrible injury soon into it what happened um, well, yeah, that was, I think I was 16, to, around 16, 17. I went on a pre-season trip to Singapore, Scotland, and then uh, played a friendly against Leeds. And in like towards the end of that friendly, I felt a pain in my knee. I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. I thought it was just maybe tendonitis or something. But after playing a few more games and training on it, I knew something wasn't right. And I got scanned and it turned out I had um, a micro fracture, which, oh, wow. like um, a torn piece of cartilage under my kneecap. And that pretty much sidelined me for the whole season. I was out from August to May. So, you know, that was a difficult, difficult situation. But um, the under-23s manager at the time was really understanding. He just said, you know, um, you were doing really well before you got your injury. We'll give you another year. Um, just do your best. Come back fit for the next season and uh, do what you can do. And then done well in the next season. And we won the under-23s league. So I got a new contract and kicked on from there, really. Okay. And you've been actually training with the first team when the injury happened? Uh, yeah. That oh, was, wow. Um, I, we had a pre-season friendly against... I think it was real, um, mm-hmm. and I scored a goal the next day. A couple of us were training with the first team, and it was the first time I'd ever trained with the first team at that point. And then the next day, the manager just said, "You can come with us to Singapore on the pre-season trip." So wow. it was a real shock, like going from one session to being away with them um, on a trip. But you know, I really enjoyed it, and uh, it was a really good pre-season up until the injury. Okay, when you're that young and you have an injury that difficult. Do you get kind of worried, scared? Yeah, I was definitely worried, especially, you know, I only had one year left on my contract. I'd, um, when I woke up from the operation, the doctor said it'd be four to six months out. So I knew I wouldn't have much time left to, um, you know, get back playing anyway. And the year before as well, I had a knee injury on the other side. And um, that could took me out of action for about three and a half months. So it was just always a fear of, you know, not being able to play and show and that Everton wouldn't have the patience with me um, but thankfully they did yeah I mean having gone through that do you now have maybe uh, even more confidence in some ways Um, yeah I'd say so I'd say um, it might have been a setback but when you know you've got the mentality to come back from struggling times you know whether it's a long term injury or just a bad spell of games if you know you've got the strong mentality to bounce back then you know it sets you up for very good things in your career hopefully um what are you hoping to get out of this club season with Wigan? Um, just to you know develop my game, become a better player, and you know with Wigan, I feel like we're a really good team, and there's no reason that we can't be pushing to you know get playoffs or promotion for next season. Even though they've just come up from League One, I feel like we've got that potential in us. So um, on the whole, I'd just like say be successful, Wigan, and you know become a better player, and then go back to Everton next year and challenge for a place in the first team as well. And this is a season-long loan? Yeah. With Wigan? Okay. What has Everton told you about how they're viewing things with you? Um, yeah, they, um, well, I was doing pre-season with the first team this year, and you know, the manager and the uh, director of football just took me aside and said, like, we think you're doing well. Um, we want to send you on loan to get more experience. I um, will like, we'll sign a new contract because we, we see you in our plans for the future. So, you know, just I need to, they just said I need to develop my game, really, to be ready to challenge for a spot. 
Okay. Um, it's a possibility you'd be age eligible to play for the U.S. in the 2020 Olympics. Uh, potentially could be a really good team, actually, when you look at the guys who are age eligible for that. Is that something you've thought about? Yeah, something I've been really hoping, uh, you know, that we um, all come to because I've always, I've always been a dream of mine since I was a kid to, you know, be a part in the Olympics. I think everyone knows it's a big stage and something to be a part of. So the fact that I'm age eligible for it and, you know, like you said, we've got a really good young set of players and we could have a pretty scary team by then. It, it's something that we could all do very well in. So I hope that, you know, we get a good team going in that. Just to wind up here, I'm curious. I know this is a, maybe a, a big question. What do you hope to achieve in your career? Um, I always I always base what I achieve in my career. I just want to get a lot of achievements. I don't know what that'll be, but um, depending on whatever clubs I go to and what I play, my aim is to just be playing top flight football, winning a lot of trophies. You know, now that I'm with the national team as well, you know, bringing trophies back home to the US as well. But I've always just wanted to, you know, get as many achievements under my belt as I can, whether it's, you know, hundreds of caps, hundreds of games, um, a lot of trophies, a lot of promotions, you know, stuff like that. That's what I'm going for anyway. Anthony Robinson, good luck with everything. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Bob Lee and Anthony Robinson, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on SI.TV, Amazon Channels, and FuboTV. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.